The following is offered by Discerning Hearts, a 501 nonprofit Catholic apostolate dedicated to spiritual formation through the use of digital media. To download this selection, or to browse hundreds of other programs, or to contribute to our mission with a charitable donation, which is fully tax-deductible, visit our website at discerninghearts.com. Ignatius Press and the Augustan Institute present The Formed Book Club. Catholic book lovers unpacking good books chapter by chapter. If you like us, please help us by subscribing and by reviewing us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you might listen. And don't forget to sign up for weekly updates and study questions at formedbookclub.ignatius.com. Welcome, y'all, to the Formed Book Club continuation of our discussion of the drama of Atheist by Andrew Dubach. We're on chapter two, Nietzsche Kierkegaard, uh, page 82, a section called Myth and Mystery. And I'll turn it over to Joseph, our, our able, fearless leader. Well, well, thank you. But I, we were having a little preamble conversation, so to speak, um, uh, before we went live. And um, Vivian had some, 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 I think, very good comments about uh, the Lubeck's writing style. So maybe you want, you want to set the scene for us, Vivian, by, by reiterating some of that. Yes. Well, uh, uh, thank you, Joseph. I um, was noting that you really see into uh, his soul a little bit when Lubeck is writing in prose, you know, some, just an exposition of something, and it turns into a prayer. Just so naturally, and I didn't know I was going to be talking about this, so I, I'm looking, well, we'll, we'll I'm, you we'll know, I'm looking to, to maybe where that is, but it's so beautiful. It just reveals something about him. And then I also uh, mentioned that his metaphors are so beautiful, and uh, I now can't remember well, any of them we'll, right we'll now. Come but, to them, but also, yeah, you have them highlight. I mean, so he's poetic. He's he's a poetic man. He's a spiritual man. He's a great soul man, and it comes through in the way he writes. And he recognizes his dependence upon his sources, which he gathers and marshals very, very strategically. But then when he goes into his own prose, even the prose is often very beautiful. Yes. In fact, when I first went to France in 1969, I was trying to learn French, which I never, never did actually, but I was encouraged to read his book, History of the Spirit, I was told this is not only a theological book of great importance, but it's also a book of French style. Oh. You know? Yeah. Well, the fact that he draws on literary people and, uh, and, and I also appreciate about him, he's very fair with his uh, assessment of the writing of other people. When he sees that they're saying something true, uh, that Christians ought to take note and listen, he says so. You know, even when he's quoting someone like Nietzsche or whatever, he says, there's so many places where he's kind of cha- challenging us, right, to live up to our calling as Christians. Yeah, I find that a characteristic of the great authors to have an empathy and sympathy with people that are criticizing. I mean, Thomas Aquinas certainly had it, as he quoted all sorts of people. I found it in C.S. Lewis again and again, and Balthasar even more. Uh, would you know, quoting these people who he's going to criticize, but he gives them their due. Another example of Robert Bellman in, in the Reformation 
he he wrote a series of books taking the Protestant positions and criticizing them, but he actually included arguments which he made for their position, so much so that his books were put on the index for Catholics to read because he was making arguments for the Protestants. But to me, that's a sign of a great mind. It is a great mind. Truth is truth. Whoever says it. All right. Myth and mystery. Yeah, well, I, the first thing I have is actually, actually quoting the words of the Lubach and not Nietzsche or anybody. It's page 84. So does anybody have anything before that? No, not I. Well, Vivian has a lot. I have things all over. Don't let that <laughs> slow you door, down. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, you see, you interject whenever you want then, Vivian. But it's the beginning of that new paragraph on page 84. And he's talking about Nietzsche's uh, early work, The Birth of Tragedy, where, where sort of Nietzsche is, trying, is formulating his position. And it's somewhat fluid. So he says, a work of such power and vehemence, The Birth of Tragedy, presents a complex of confused values in which the true and the false are inextricably mingled. Or rather, these values are found there still in such a state of development that they must often be called ambivalent and that a process of discernment is indispensable in their regard. So, so the idea that, that this, this early work by Nietzsche was a, the work of a mind in flux. Um, so, you know, and, and I think you, know, you, you need to be able to, to see a work and an author in context. Uh, but, you know, and and they, they, their position can change um, throughout their life. And so to, 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 just, to see it as something static, though Nietzsche is Nietzsche, uh, I think is, uh, is, is, is clearly not true. This is early Nietzsche and he's grappling with things and he's therefore he's uh, hasn't come to a, uh, you know, a, a, a way of even understanding the, the ideas he's presenting himself. Well, he was a seminarian, was he not, for a while? Well, his father was a Protestant minister. When I said that to my husband, he went, another one? Yeah. <laughs> because so many of these great German minds that kind of ran amok actually were the sons of Protestant clergymen. But in any case. Um, well, that makes your point, though, too, about the, uh, the true and the false are inextricably mingled. And so discernment is needed. And that's a. That's what Dulemac does. And and he even says that's what he does, where uh, I, now I'm looking for those places where, yes, on page 89, he talks about the first discernment being intellectual. And on 91, he talks about the second needed discernment being spiritual. And I thought, how much a son of Ignatius, this man of discernment, right? That this is just such an yeah. important uh, feature of the way he goes about uh, looking at a work with discernment, both mental and spiritual. And I underline that whole paragraph on page 91. We'll get to that. I did too. But I want to go back to 85 here, towards the middle. Uh, in the church herself, reaching out beyond logical forms and methods of exposition that owed much to a Cartesian tradition of scholarship, so there's a criticism of his own French ancestor, Descartes, Descartes. Uh, we have linked linked up again with a more substantial tradition. There's been a more and more decided return to the golden age of medieval thought, that of Thomas Aquinas and St. Bonaventure. So people criticize the Lubach these days of being anti-Thomist. He's not anti-Thomist. He, he wants to get the best out of Thomas. And keep reading. And, and this movement of return, increasingly apparent, is gradually restoring the climate of mystery that was eminently the climate of patristic thought. So yeah. Thomas and patristic thought. That's right. So you don't want to extract Thomas out of this out of this 
you know, river of tradition and just set him up in isolation and, and make him the oracle of all truth. No, he's part of a whole continuation of Christian thought. And who knows better than that than de Lubach himself, who was an expert on the fathers, read them all. And anyway. Yes. And that, and that Thomas himself was an example of discernment. Yes. Of, of trying to gather together the pros and the cons as he, Every, every question he had that, and then trying to discern, well, where, where's the meat? Where's the truth? Where do they come together? Uh, you learn so much from these people. Huh. So, uh, let's see. I have something on 87. No, I have something on 86. Oh, go ahead. Well, uh, yeah, it's about 10 lines down or so on that page. Uh, it doesn't read a passage here. It's actually the Lubeck's voice, um, or the Lubeck's words, but with various quotes embedded within it we are certainly cured of our infatuation for a world wholly explainable and indeterminately perfectible by pure reason we have learned how brittle is that palace of glass that symbolized the life rationalized through and through even if it could really be built we should find it nothing but a prison so you know reason reduced to rationalism and, and the inadequacies of, inadequacies of that more than ever, even outside the dogmas of our faith, we recognize with Pascal a lack of clarity. Are we therefore to set about creating a mythology in willful darkness and mythology no matter what? Such a consent to illusion, with all it implies of contempt for truth, can never be ours. And then this is an example of Delubac's aphoristic prose. Vertigo, vertigo must not be confused with ecstasy. You know, that basically that we, we, we are going to set up, you know, uh, false myths that we know not to be true because of the ne necessity of having myths uh, and abandoning both reason uh, and uh, and clarity in, in pursuit of uh, something which we think is ecstasy, but it's really just a, a fear of heights. Yes, and I think this section is important because it contrasts myth and reason but also shows how there can be a union of myth and reason. Uh, and Joseph, certainly you among the three of us, uh, which is not a big example, but nevertheless, you're the, the most accomplished in, in understanding the meaning of myth. We, we get into that later, but I mean, uh, is the box view of myth consistent with Lewis's and Tolkien's? That's the question I've got. We'll get to it. Uh, yeah, that would be an interesting conversation when we get there. Mm -hmm. So, right. um, you think someone said you some, someone said they had something on eighty seven? Eighty seven, the, the last line against forces in which the best of man is threatened with foundering, we would much rather choose him for an ally. Who is the him here? Socrates, ally, and not only Socrates with his dialectic, but Descartes too with his clear and distinct ideas, and even Voltaire's irony on occasion. So, on the one hand, he's, he's criticizing uh, an over-reliance on mere rational thought, but he's not disregarding Descartes and the idea of, let's get some clarity here. Right. Or even Voltaire's irony. Yeah. I mean, um, a man like Nietzsche was something of a humorless fellow. I mean, these people. <laughs> uh, yes. So, uh, and then, and notice how, I mean, we'll see it, it develop, his contempt for charity itself, Right. Uh, Nietzsche's contempt for charity itself. So yes, this is a humorless fellow. This is this is uh, uh, a volcano of hate. To borrow something from Evelyn Waugh. 
Yes, indeed. <laughs> yes, um, that was our Carver speaking of um, Lord Marshmain. Is that right? Anyway, uh, uh, that, 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 that's a digression. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but um, I, I, I had a conversation with uh, Susanna, my, my wife, earlier. When that, that, I don't know if this is this is actually on topic, but it's um, about Puritanism. Uh, and uh, the, the, the how the pride movement, I was saying that the pride movement, um, which of course is rooted in Nietzscheanism, that's the whole point, right? This is where Nietzscheanism leads, apart from Nazism, um, that, uh, that there's Puritanism about it. And she, and she took she took a, a, a exception to that, Susanna, because, you know, well, they're not, not Puritans, they're hedonistic in their morality and what have you. I said, well, no, they're Puritanical in the sense that they lack humour because they take themselves too seriously. And we were actually... That the, the fact they just tried to ban a scene from from um, uh, Monty Python's uh, Life of Brian. This is irony of ironies, right? Um, because it's, it, it, it's, it's where you know, basically they're they're lampooning this idea that a man's right to have a baby because obviously it's absurd, right? And and so this is a very funny comic sketch. And now they've asked Monty Python to excise to ban to take that part of that scene out. And John Cleese has, 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 has refused. And it's basically he's saying that these people are destroying humour. They have no sense of humour. And they say, again, the pride movement, the modern pride movement, are the latter-day saints of Nietzscheanism. Yeah, uh, it would be very hard to create a humour index, but my experience is that more traditional people seem to have a greater sense of humour than more progressive or left-leaning people. And I think, of course, the, the model of them all is Chesterton, who yep. would argue these people, but at the same time, he always had this jolliness, this mirth about him. But I don't get that with Black Lives Matter. I'm sorry. Maybe they no, do. And the, humor, the humor of the radical left is actually lack, all lacks charity. It's basically a cynical pointing the finger of scorn and laughing at opponents. You know, it's in, which you never see in the humor of Chesterton, for instance. By the way, on this same page, to your point about Nietzsche being willing to invent a myth, even if it's false, just to have one, uh, right after this discussion we're talking about on page 88, um, Delubach says, one can never feel at ease with a mind, meaning Nietzsche's mind, that rejects miracles and at the same time welcomes myths. A mind that, while denying the only true God, feels the need to create gods for itself. Yes, very good. And so basically, if you don't the supernatural, you're happy to accept the lie, effectively. Um, I don't have anything. Well, I just have one quick comment on, on page 90, which I, I want, want to talk about. Just a quick phrase. I don't know if anybody has anything before that, do they? No, not no, necessarily. <laughs> Not necessarily. <laughs> well, whenever you feel it's necessarily, you just you just let me know, okay? But uh, about two thirds of the way down page ninety, uh, just this subclause there. This Socrates of Nietzsche's, who is himself a myth, for that matter. Mm -hmm. So the other, that's the other thing that we have to be aware of is that you know, when Nietzsche is uh, uh, critiquing Socrates, he's not critiquing Socrates. He's critiquing Nietzsche's view of Socrates, which is not the same thing. Um, so, and again, again it's this discernment that, that the Lubeck has that allows us to understand that with Nietzsche, we're not dealing with someone who's actually treating things objectively. He doesn't believe in objectivity. So everything is subjective. So he, he makes of Socrates who he wants Socrates to be, 
and it shoots him. We'll return to the Forum Book Club with Father Joseph Fessio, Vivian Dudreau, and Joseph Pierce in just a moment. Did you know that Discerning Hearts has a free app in which you can find all your favorite Discerning Hearts programming? Father Timothy Gallagher, Dr. Anthony Lillis, Deacon James Keating, Mike Aquilina, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, and so many more are found on the Discerning Hearts free app. Did you also know that you can stream Discerning Hearts programming on numerous streaming platforms such as Apple Podcasts, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Pandora, Spotify, Stitcher, Tune in, and so many more. And did you know that Discerning Hearts also has the YouTube page? Be sure to check out all these different places where you can find Discerning Hearts. Take, Lord, and receive all my liberty, my memory, my understanding, and my entire will, all that I have and call my own. You have given all to me. To you, Lord, I return it. Everything is yours. Do with it what you will. Give me only your love and your grace. That is enough for me. Amen. Hello, my name is Deacon Omar Gutierrez, and I want to ask you to support Discerning Hearts in a special way. We, Chris McGregor, the board, and I all know that not everyone listening can help financially. We know we have listeners from all parts of the world, and we have made a commitment since the beginning to make the truths shared through Discerning Hearts totally free. So while you may not be able to contribute financially, what you can do is certainly pray, but also give us positive reviews on whatever platform you use to listen to us. If it's iTunes, Android, Stitcher, Spotify, however it is that you get these podcasts, or if you're on YouTube and you like our videos, please give us a good rating and write a review. The more good ratings and reviews we get, the higher our profile, and the more listeners will discover us, listeners who may have the means to contribute in the future. Please consider rating us and writing a positive review today. We now return to the Formed Book Club with Father Joseph Fezio, Vivian Dudreau, and Joseph Pierce. On 91, I kind of made a, well, sometimes I underline and sometimes I make a line in the, in the, in the margin for a whole paragraph. But in the middle of that paragraph, I underline this sentence. There is a sacredness of myth, which like vapor rising from the earth, emanates from infrahuman regions, and there is a sacredness of mystery, which is like peace descending from the heavens. Now, that sounds to be contradicting what Lewis says in Hill of Miracles, that he sees myth as a uh, heavenly uh, truths that are, that are somehow mingled with and maybe distorted by human imagination. But you know, I think I think Lewis's view is that even myths come from above. Yeah, well, I think I think Lewis and Tolkien's view is is that that the, the myth, the true myth, in other words, that the, the truth itself is a, a story. Myth here is understood as being a story. That, that God Himself is a storyteller, um, and you know the the story is His story, 
Um, uh, and all of our stories contain splintered fragments of that true story that can be that can be distorted by our own humanity, by including our own pride and our own our own um, weakness. So, um, but uh, the the storytelling, the mythopoeic function, mythopoeia. Is, uh, is you know is, is is part of the imago dei in us. The, the imagination is part of the, the the image of God in us, and therefore, obviously, insofar as we are making stories, we are we are we are uh, doing something divine. Now that that can be distorted and perverted by our own pride. We can we can use our storytelling to tell a lie, but basically, the act of storytelling is something which is divine, and that that's basically the Tolkien and Lewis position. I I think De Lubac isn't. Uh, contradicting that, and in fact, if you keep reading, uh, including all the way to the bottom of the top paragraph on page 92, and I don't want to read the whole thing, but if I may just pick out certain key passages that, that show that he's not, it's not as though he and Lewis and Tolkien are in some kind of contradiction, at least I don't think so, because, okay, so he talks about this myth as a vapor rising from the earth and the sacredness of mystery coming down from heaven. So that does seem to be kind of a contrast. The one links us with nature, meaning myth, and attunes us to her rhythm, but also enslaves us to her fatal powers. The other is the gift of the spirit that makes us free. One finds its embodiment in symbols that man holds as he pleases and into which he projects his terrors and his desires this that's myth and the symbols of the other are received from on high by the man who in contemplating them discovers the secret of his own nobility in concrete terms there is the pagan myth and the christian mystery then on 92 um not that the second rejects the first out of hand okay not that the christian mystery rejects out of hand the myth that man in his natural context using his imagination has come up with mystery does not refute to make use of myth any more than reason does in the human order on the contrary mystery takes over a part of it filters it purifies it exercises it as it were there is an authentic sacredness in the cosmos this is the thing that the myth maker is perceiving right uh for it is full of the vestiges of divinity there is a mystique of the earth, but it needs to be Christianized. When it aspires to reign alone, it is no longer even terrestrial. The mark of the spirit of evil is upon it. And I would wager to guess that if Tolkien and Lewis were here, they would agree with what de Lubac is saying here. Well, one thing I would say as a caveat um, is that in The Pilgrim's Regress, uh, the character of Father History. So Pilgrim's Regress by C.S. Lewis is an allegory, sort of similar sort of to the Pilgrim's Progress by Bunyan. And Father History talks about the landlord's people, in other words, the Jews. Uh, they could still read, and therefore they, they knew the law, and they were very, very uh, intent on writing it down, right, because they could still read. But everybody else had become so estranged from the landlord, landlord's God, right? They're so estranged from the landlord that they no longer knew how to read. But Father History says that, that the landlord didn't abandon them because they could not, did not know how to read. He sent them pictures. Mm. Uh, in other words, that the, 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 the human myths um, amongst, the, amongst the Gentiles was actually a way by which God communicated and showed them the way to himself.
Well, and we see a bit of that here with there's an authentic sacredness in the cosmos for it is full of vestiges of the divinity. Those pictures, if you will, are windows into something about God. I mean, everything that's made by the word of God is speaking something of God. Everything that he makes is speaking about him ultimately. So again, I don't see I don't see that we have to set up a dichotomy between I don't believe so either. And, and that's why I said caveat, not contradiction. Right, um, right. But, but I, I do think that the mark of the spirit of evil, I don't think the mark of this, in other words, the, the satanic presence is not in uh, the mythopoeic function itself, the story. No, no, no. He says, when, when, when the myth that man has derived from nature and projected himself into it aspires to reign alone, Yes. Meaning not willing to be purified, not willing to be corrected by higher truths, you know. So then, it's poisoned by pride. And once it's poisoned by pride, it does have the mark of the evil spirit on it. There you go. Yes. So I think I would say in conclusion to my, my own question, that while it might have appeared on page 91, that Duluth Black was contrasting that which comes from the infrahuman pagan myths and that which comes from above, you know, divine revelation, uh, he really does see, just as Lewis and Tolkien did, that myths themselves are a perception of divine things, vestiges of things in the cosmos, mm -hmm. which are purified by Christianity. And then, of course, uh, you know, Lewis creates the myth of Narnia, which is a very Christian place. Uh, and I think Tolkien, even more adroitly, creates a myth where there's no Christ, there's no Aslan, there's there's no supernatural exactly, and yet he embodies all the truths of Christianity in what appears to be a, a myth of merely human, you know, and hobbits. Well, like what's that. interesting, uh, having gotten into on the side a side uh, thing here, getting into Wagner a little bit because of finding him in this book, right? And then um, I had read the Nibelungen lead a long time ago, long time ago. Um, but to now see how Tolkien took that myth and Christianized it. That, so you see now, um, you know, Tolkien, the gold that gets stolen from the um, river maiden, river nymphs and turned into the ring of power and all this kind of thing. Anyway, it's, it's, it's a fun thing to start comparing these older sources that were pagan sources that Wagner in the Nietzschean hero mode turns into one thing and Tolkien in this Christianization of the myth turns into something else. I mean, yeah. that would be a study worthy of a book right there or a dissertation it, or something. It would, it would and should. Yes. So I've got page 93 actually, which does actually play into what we've just been talking about. And this is, uh, Peggy's uh, version, uh, a view of, of myth and the pagan world. So it's about eight lines down on page 93. Peggy, be it noted, had in mind the ancient world, that is to say the pagan world before Christ, in its highest moral and religious endeavor. He had in mind that part of the soul of the ancients that was worth more than their gods, than, than their myths. He was thinking of Sophocles and his Antigone which is a myth, it's a story. He was thinking of the Severus of Podiopta, which I'm sure I'm pronouncing that wrong. He was thinking of Plato. 
So of the storytelling, uh, the tragedy, uh, the, the the reason, the philosophy, and uh, a bit, few lines further down, quite different from the, from the paganism that Pagey honoured. Not a symbol of Christian light to come, but anti-Christian paganism, which begins by proclaiming the death of God with Nietzsche as its prophet. And again, I, I think I even said this last week, but I can't help but say it again. When C.S. Lewis says that the ancient pagans were like uh, uh, the a virgin awaiting the coming of the bridegroom, whereas the new pagans, like the divorcee, who, who, who have turned their back on the marriage. And I think that encapsulates what's being said there by yes. the Lubach. And I want it, I, um, you know, keeping in mind when, when de Lubach was writing this, and this is during the German occupation of uh, France and the um, Vichy, you know, government and all of that. And so you see these references to Nazism without calling it by name throughout this thing. And here's one of them, because he's explaining how this rationalism that took hold in Christianity, too, with historical critical method of the Bible and blah, 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 how it really gutted Christianity, right? It gutted Christianity of its mystery, of its inner dynamism. And so uh, what Delubach says on 93, it hollowed out. Here's another great metaphor. It hollowed out the channel for a new paganism whose waves are now breaking over us and which is quite different from the paganism that Peggy honored. Not a symbol of Christian light to come, but an anti-Christian paganism. And that's exactly what Nazism is. Yes. In the next paragraph, which sums this up, Nietzsche and Peggy are two prophets who dominate our age. And I would say, who knows, who thinks about them? But in fact, if you look underneath what's happening in our society now, in our kind of pragmatic, non-philosophic, non-like society, you see the roots are there. Anyway, uh, they are at one in embracing the task of criticism. Both execrate the, quote, modern world. Mm-hmm. But the question is, do we go back to paganism or a paganism that's been divorced, you know, from God? Or do we go forward to a Christianity which embraces the good of, of, of myth but purifies it? Mm-hmm. Well, and keep going. Here he says, while Nietzsche is the prophet of Sition, Piguet is the prophet of fidelity. And while Nietzsche, in order to chain us to the reeling chariot of his Dionysus, I mean, this is just this Ah. language, the the reeling chariot, as opposed to the chariot of Apollo, right? Which, 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 which flies straight, you know? Anyway, it's so, it's so great. The Nietzsche, in order to chain us to the reeling chariot of his Dionysus, is led on to curse the cross of Christ. Peggy shows in Jesus the one in whom the whole of ancient tragedy is concentrated and transfigured. Oh. Wow. Uh, but, 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 but read those three beautiful lines of Peggy's poetry there. He was to inherit tragic terror. He was to inherit tragic pity. In him they are turned to ardent charity. Wow. Meaning Jesus. Jesus inherited tragic yeah. terror. Jesus he, on the cross. Yeah. Jesus on the cross. He inherited tragic pity, and in him they returned to ardent charity. And this is the very cross and Christ that Nietzsche hates, hates. You know, we spent 30 wonderful minutes. Uh, we're at the end of a session, section. So let's begin next week with section three, 
deeper immersion in existence, which would be Kierkegaard, basically. Right. Now I'm a fan of Kierkegaard. I didn't know I was. Oh, okay. <laughs> At least the, the good things in there, because there's a lot of good in there. All right. See you all next week. God bless you. If you enjoyed this discussion, please help spread the word about the Forum Book Club by subscribing to the podcast and writing a review. You can sign up for weekly updates at formedbookclub.ignatius.com.